Hypothetical question. Government give you a billion pounds. How are you going to invest it? Keeping in line with your values, biophilia, sustainability. Um, and what area would you choose to invest it in? Um, I think there is enormous inequity um, for people's connection to the natural world. And I think we've seen that in during lockdown in cities like London, where the more well-off people have far greater proximity and access to nature, be that through gardens and the proximity to large London parks, whereas uh, sort of other sort of socio-economic groups, uh, I think racial groups as well, have also really suffered during lockdown. They haven't got, you know, they're living in tighter conditions, uh, poor light, no balconies, no public amenity, immediately surrounding spaces, much, much worse access. So I think it would be in about trying to balance up that connection to nature for the people who, who have less of it, for whom there would be enormous value. Any so finding ways of integrating nature into the built environment. And that may be about rethinking the cladding of a building, giving people balconies, giving people uh, a kind of rooftop terraces, thinking about how the spaces around buildings not only just kind of connect with nature, but give people meaningful experiences that they can sort of start to reconnect. So, you know, whether it's about allotment groups or kind of uh, reconnecting with soil and food, trying to balance up some of that inequity, I think it's probably the most valuable way of spending a billion pounds. Yeah, what a lovely idea. And specifically, your passion would be to introduce that to London. I, I think there are many cities where, there, where we're experiencing this, this inequity across our society. Um, and I think, um, you know, even in Brighton, where I live, there, there is a, a, a recognised number of children who've never seen the sea. You know, and, and bits of Brighton are only five, you know, four or five miles away. Mm. So it happens in every city probably in the UK. So just trying to balance up and recognise that. Talk to me a little bit about your education department within Oliver Heath. Well, um, so we're an unusual design company in that we don't just do designs and deliver them to our kind of wealthy clients. Uh, it's important to me to take this evidence-based approach to kind of pick up the ideas of some of those godfathers of biophilic design and find ways of developing and enhancing them for the contemporary age. And of course, we've gone through such seismic shifts. There's a lot of changes going on. So we have a research department in my company uh, made up of kind of designers and sort of psychologists. Uh, um, uh, and, uh, and what we do in that is we basically collate knowledge and research from environmental psychologists. And we bring that together to enhance opportunities within biophilic design and think about how they can be applied to different spaces, whether that's workplace or education or residential design. So a lot of it's about kind of just bringing the research that's out there together, thinking about it and, and making it accessible to people. So on our website, we've got five or six white papers all about how we can um, kind of reconnect with nature in the built environment to enhance um, well-being, but also communities think about pre and post occupancy evaluations uh, uh, and uh, a new one about cognitive and sensory well-being and how we can design to support people with neurodiverse issues, but also recognizing that actually everybody has sort of different sensory experiences of buildings. So lots of knowledge and white papers for people to kind of download for free. And, and where can people access these resources? Um, it's from our website, which is oliverheathdesign.com. And 
Is that something that we have to pay for? Is that something? No, no, those white papers are actually for free. We've been writing with a company called Interface, who are a global flooring company, who have been uh, the most fantastic supporter of our investigations into health and well-being. So they're basically a sustainable leader in, in kind of manufacturing and material design and supply. Uh, and they've been interested in both kind of traditional carbon-centered forms of sustainability, but also this human-centered element. Uh, and so I've been giving talks and seminars on their behalf on biophilic design and also producing all these kind of knowledge-based white papers. So it's been like a really fantastic uh, partnership with, with them. You have been busy. You have been a very busy Very, very, very busy, yes. What, what, yes. Do you want, what do you want your legacy to be? Oh, uh, that we've found ways to integrate nature in ways that are beneficial to both people and planet lovely yeah i guess and that's it really <laughs> backed by science yeah well we've got to take a science-based approach definitely i mean you know why would you ignore the science you know it's 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 not fiction as some presidents might say but it's fasc <laughs> it's fascinating it's amazing when you unveil it yeah yeah it's because really principally design is historically known as being a subjective area an opinion, a personal opinion-based mm. area, yeah. which is why, you know, some designers, you know, find it difficult to work with clients because, you know, maybe the client doesn't particularly, you know, like how the, the designer has translated their vision. Yes, yes, absolutely. Well, um, that, that science is actually makes it that much more compelling. It's not just, you know, you that, that kind of thinks that. It's, you know, here's the research that demonstrates the value of it. And I think, you know, translating it into numbers and the science and the kind of facts and figures are, is it just really important means to, to kind of demonstrate the value of it. Mm. I mean, you are, you, you embody kind of your work, you know, you, you, for me, you are an authentic, integrated human who, who walks their talk. What does a day in the life of Oliver look like? I mean, you just sound yeah. so busy. Um, yeah, I feel quite busy, actually. Yeah, um, I, I tend to wake up quite early. Uh, what time? I don't know, like 6.15 or something. Is that quite early? Uh, some people. It's, it is from the rest of my family. Relatively early, I'm going to say, because they like to sleep in. Um, and I quite like the peace and quiet in the mornings. So I might get up, uh, have breakfast, walk Zev. What do you eat for breakfast? Oh, I kind of, I'm really into uh, kind of... Um, Gut health, actually. I'm really interested in the kind of gut health and microbiomes. And it's basically... Mark Hyman? Dr. No, Mark Hyman? Oh, okay. I'm going to look him up. Okay. Yeah. So basically, into this idea that we have gut health and, and basically we have a microflora in our stomach. So our connection with nature doesn't start with a pot plant. It starts with looking after and nurturing the microbiome and microflora in our stomachs. So I think it's really important personally to eat a lot of fruit and a lot of fiber. And, you know, eating kind of like natural yogurts um things that will support your microbiome and that's that's kind of like probiotics, uh, probiotics what, what are you reading to get educated on that uh basically listening to a few podcasts and Who's? different people uh oh i was listening to one the other day so i just can't remember his name i'm terrible with names that's my problem but gut flora <laughs> gut flora is just you're... really really important so kind of always sort of eat um yeah sort of foods that will support your gut flora. For example? Uh, well, yogurts. I think oats, yogurts, nuts, seeds, uh, chia seeds, uh, you know, as, I, as I mentioned, kind of probiotic yogurts and milk drinks, fermented foods, eating a lot of fruit and vegetables is just really important. So, you know, basically being vegetarian, that makes that a little bit easier, trying not to eat too many processed foods. So 
yeah, keeping that because I think there is this a really interesting emerging idea of the connection between the kind of gut brain axis and how important your your gut is for influencing your physical and mental well-being. And we can design environments to support that. Well, we say that our psychology affects our physiology. So what we actually think and believe mm -hmm. actually affects the way we feel, which is principally what you talk about. Mm. And I think You're some of that, that feeling starts within the gut. Mm. Um, so, you know, looking after that gut floor, I think, is really important. I think this is a new area that, that's going to, in the next 10 years, become more and more and more recognised, understood and more important. So that's breakfast, then what? Yeah, so, so then I sort of probably cycle to work, get to work about um, at 8 o'clock in the morning and have an hour in work before my staff come in. So cycling, no driving? Oh yeah, cycle every day. Yeah, yeah, cycle through Brighton. Yeah, exactly. Got to cycle. Brighton's quite hilly, so you get quite a good, good bit of exercise. Uh, and then have an hour before work, to kind of before my staff come in to answer the flood of emails from the day before. And then the staff come in and basically it'll be like meetings with staff, Creative discussions, Zoom calls, answer a few emails, more Zoom calls, then just kind of like cycle home, a bit kind of overwhelmed by the end of the day. Oh, and the other thing we do, which is really important, I forgot to say, we have this thing at work, uh, which is, we call the power of soup. And, and basically every day, what we do is we kind of at about kind of 11 o'clock, we sort of discuss what soup we're going to make. And somebody goes to get the ingredients from a local shop and we have a soup machine. And then we make fresh soup every day. And it's really, really important for the kind of like the connectivity of our group. So everyone, when the, the soup is made, we pour it out and everyone sits around the table and we just eat soup every day. So it's a very simple, basic, humanizing, democratic decision-making process. But basically everyone sits around the table and we eat soup. So it's fresh, it's nutritious. And we have conversations about what's going on in people's lives or about what they're watching or reading or uh things that we're doing or should be doing and it's just this kind of lovely moment where nobody's sitting at their desk and eating everyone's eating fresh healthy food and we just connect for you know 45 minutes every day what a lovely initiative it's really really nice and it's just amazing the ideas that have come from this really simple thing it means that everybody eats fresh healthy food for like you know 50p a person so it's easy enough for me just to kind of pay for people to have lunch mm. and they don't go out, you know, they kind of, we, we, but we can, we contain it. We, we keep some of that sense of social activity and goodwill and ideas as well. So it's a really lovely little thing of just kind of bringing people together. Mm.